0: Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful to you that we can lift our eyes and see our help come not merely from the hills around us, but from Zion's holy hill, a place where you are enthroned, O God, in your garden temple. We are thankful, O God, that you have loved us and that you have made yourself known to us and that you have worked mightily on behalf of your people, wretched sinners that we are. Nevertheless, O God, you have set your love upon a people, even from the foundation of the world, and in time have redeemed us by the blood of your Son. You have sent forth your Spirit to call us out of darkness and death. You have written the story of our lives, the end of it from the beginning, and you have worked it all for your glory and honor and praise and for the good of those who love you. And we love you, O God, because your Spirit has poured out your love within our hearts. As we look at ourselves and at our lives, O oh God, we confess that we are not lovable and that apart from your grace, we all would remain in rebellion, wandering far from paths of righteousness. Oh God, it is your love that has changed our lives. It is your grace that has changed and is changing us day by day. We're thankful that you have called us to peace and that you've called us to joy. We're thankful that you've made us for yourself, that we might ever delight in you. We pray, O God, that you would help us, that as we encounter trials and tribulations in this life, O Lord, that these would be instruments for drawing us closer to yourself, that you would teach us more of your goodness and your mercy, and that you would help us to find rest in your sovereign purpose and promise that guides us through every valley and in every moment of of tear. We pray, O God, that you would bless our congregation. We are so thankful. For the safe birth of covenant children, and we anticipate the birth of more very soon. We pray that your blessing would be upon all of these babies and mothers and families. God, that as a church, we would love each other well because we have been loved by you well. And that you would strengthen us and help us in that endeavor. Oh God, we pray that you would make us to be a bright and shining light in this community. Lord, that we would love our neighbors and that we would find opportunities as you create them for us to speak of Christ uh, to our friends, to our co-workers, to those who are around us, that others might see the power of your grace and truth living in us all. We ask your blessing upon our nation, O God, that you would grant us repentance and revival, that you would lead us in truth and justice, O God, that you'd raise up God-fearing leaders uh, to govern us. And we pray for your church in all the world, in all places, O oh God, that you would make her pure and strong and holy and beautiful, that you would correct the erring and that you would depose the proud and abusive, God, that you would lead your church aright and that you would remove hypocrites from her midst. We pray, Father, that you would bless us tonight as we open your word. Lord, we do love your word. And we love this book of consolation that we are working our way through and the prophecies that you gave to Jeremiah. We pray that even as the uh, dream that you gave him was sweet to his soul, so it might be sweet to our ears and to our hearts this night, and that we would be encouraged and strengthened by the work of grace that you have and are and will ultimately accomplish in your Son, Jesus, who is the Christ, our Lord, Savior, and Redeemer, and in whose name we do pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, you've got the same study guide from last week, and I'll tell you it's just not going to be much help to you at all. Uh, You're just going to have to pay attention. Uh, because we said we did something a little bit different with this study guide. Instead of working in kind of unit-by-unit fashion, as we've done in most of the other handouts, uh, we gave kind of an introduction to the Book of Consolation, Jeremiah chapters 30 to 33, uh, gave you uh, kind of an overview of this material, uh, and then some key themes that we will circle back to uh, probably at the end of our survey of the material, and we'll just go back through and make sure that we caught all of those points. Tonight, we're going to focus on Jeremiah chapter 31, if you want to be turning there. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 30, and and there's an interesting thing that happens here in the book of Consolation, especially in chapters 30 and 31, 32 and 33 will change a little bit, but in 30 and 31, uh, you have kind of the repetition of joyful promise language interspersed and alternating with the judgment language, just as we saw last week. It kind of goes back and forth a little bit. But much of the material in one sense is, um, is very familiar. In other words, we don't have to go through verse by verse and unpack every single verse because a lot of what we're seeing is kind of said in multiple times, in multiple ways uh, throughout this material in this recurring, echoing fashion. At the same time, there are certain parts of this portion of Scripture that are really arresting and that people have wrestled with because they've wondered what are the implications, for example, the promises of the new covenant and the way in which God speaks about that here in chapter 31. There are some textual issues that come up because this portion of Jeremiah's prophecy is quoted by the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8, and his use of it is really a fascinating puzzle. So we're going to take some time and work through some of those issues tonight, but I want to begin by just reading the entirety of chapter 31. It's a a long section, but... uh, uh, it's, a, it's a blessing to hear. So let's give our attention now to the word of God, Jeremiah chapter 31. At the same time, says Yahweh, I will be the God of all the peoples, of, uh, excuse me, of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says Yahweh, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give him rest. Yahweh has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to Yahweh our God. For thus says Yahweh, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of Yahweh, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of Yahweh. For wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says Yahweh, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says Yahweh, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says Yahweh, that your children shall come back to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return, for you are Yahweh my God. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says Yahweh. Set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel, turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For Yahweh has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity Yahweh bless you, a home of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. After this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says Yahweh. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge." No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever." Thus says Yahweh, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, that the city shall be built for Yahweh from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Garib, then it shall turn toward Goath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies, and of the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy to Yahweh. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. Now that's just a great chapter, right? Just everything in that chapter, I think, is fascinating. Every part of the promise of the joy intermingled with judgment, it's not as if the Lord says all of the judgment uh, is, uh, is, is no, you know, I'm relenting from that, it's no longer going to come to pass. He says, no, judgment is actually going to be, be the means by which I purge this land of the wicked. It's going to be the means by which I bring this salvation to you. But what is it that God is calling his people to? He's calling them to joy. Now, let me just flash forward for a minute. We're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter and just kind of work through it quickly. But let me flash forward to the language that I'm sure you recognized in verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And you know that passage, whether you have ever read the book of Jeremiah or not, you know that passage because of Matthew's use of it in Matthew chapter 2. And Matthew tells us that that is a prophecy that is anticipating the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem after the birth of Christ. This is when Herod orders the the babies to be killed. Now, you could argue, well, Jeremiah is speaking more thematically, and Matthew is simply using that as in, in kind of a typological fashion of that particular historical event I'm not going to argue that point. I think probably the connection is closer than that, but but if you think that, it's fine. What I want you to notice, though, is that this prophecy, which Matthew locates in terms of fulfillment after the birth of Jesus, this prophecy in Jeremiah's mind, in the presentation that the Spirit makes in this prophecy, that prophecy is going to be fulfilled prior to the return from exile that Jeremiah is describing. Do you see that? Now, we've said this, (laughs) over and over and over and over in our study of the prophets. But the return from exile that is anticipated by the prophets is not primarily the return to the land that happens in the days of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And this is yet another reminder of that, that here is a prophecy that Jeremiah says is going to be fulfilled before the Lord brings back the people. Notice what he says in verse 17, "Don't, Don't weep, there is hope for your future that your children shall come back. Your children will come back to their own border. In other words, the return from exile that is in view in this book of Consolation and that is in view more broadly in the entire body of the the prophetic literature of the Hebrew Bible, that return from exile is going to happen after Rachel weeps for her children, which Matthew says is what happened when the babies were slaughtered by Herod in the districts of Bethlehem after the birth of Christ. You see that? The return from exile that's anticipated here, just as we saw last week with regard to the language of David coming and being their king, the return from exile is the coming of Messiah. It's the enthronement of Christ. It's the salvation that he brings. Now, one of the dangers here is that this passage gets read in kind of an overrealized eschatology. And we're going to deal with this particularly with regard to the promise of the new covenant. But let me just mention it here for a moment because it's important in the first half of the chapter as well. Sometimes people might look at a passage like this and they think, well, obviously that's talking about heaven. Didn't Jesus say in this world you will have tribulation? Didn't Paul say we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God? Didn't Paul warn Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? Yes, all of those things are in your New Testament scriptures. So all of this joy and this plenty and this peace and contentment, that must just just be talking about the eschaton, when we are in glory in the new heavens and earth. Well, obviously, the consummate experience of that is going to be in the eschatological land of glory, right? It's going to be in the new heavens and earth. But it seems, it seems to me, as you're working through this passage and other ones like it, that Jeremiah has something in mind that is a little bit nearer to us than that, that uh, consummation. He has in mind the blessings of the messianic kingdom. He has in mind the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that God's people find under the rule and reign of Christ. And that doesn't mean that there are not trials and tribulations. It does not mean that we don't have to endure. It doesn't mean that we never weep. But it does mean that we are called as the people of God right now to joy. And we need to be diligent in appropriating that blessing. We need to be diligent in acting upon that promise, right? It's a promise. It's not an imperative. It's an indicative, but that's a promise that's to be claimed and that you're supposed to live in light of. You're not supposed to be sitting back just like in your repentance. You're not supposed to sit back with your arms folded and say, well, whenever God wants me to be holy, he'll make me holy. Well, you're doing kind of the same thing if you're sitting back and saying, well, you know, when God wants me to be joyful, he'll make me joyful. Well, no, he's he's brought to you the joy of the new covenant. He's brought to you the joy of the messianic kingdom. Now, act like that is true. And that's important as we work through the first half of this chapter. So notice, uh, coming back to the to the very beginning, I will be God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Well, that's been the promise all along, hasn't it? That's been the promise that's kind of guided the Bible story, at least since the days of Abraham. I will be God to you and to your children. And yet, is that what it's looked like for some time leading up to Jeremiah's ministry? No. The northern kingdom of Israel has been destroyed, deported by the Assyrians. They are scattered among the nations. They're never going to return in a, in a visible, physical, political sense and become a, a, you know, a reconstituted political commonwealth. The southern kingdom of Judah has been led by wicked men and fools for a very long time and they are on the brink of disaster. The Babylonians are literally besieging the city of Jerusalem at this time. We'll see in chapter 32, probably next week, that, uh, that at least that part of the book of consolation is received during the siege. Maybe the whole book is, uh, is uh, being revealed at the same time we said last week. Uh, so it doesn't appear as if these are the people of God. It doesn't appear as if God is near to these people, but there is coming a time when that reality will be re-emphasized and will be once again evident. Thus says the Lord, verse 2, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give him rest. The, the motif of the wilderness is fascinating uh, throughout Scripture, the way that it's described in the, uh, uh, the uh, historical narrative of the Old Testament, the way that it's then appropriated by the Psalms and the prophets, and then the way it's unpacked in the New Testament. That because the wilderness... You don't. Nobody wants to be in the wilderness. It's not as if the wilderness is the Garden of Eden. It's not right. It's where you go when you're cast out of the Garden of Eden. But the wilderness is a place of intimacy with God. It's a place of testing. It's a place of chastening. But it's also a place of intimacy with God. In other words, you read the book of Deuteronomy, you look at the way in which God worked for the people during the time of their wilderness sojourn, you realize the ways that God fought for his people, protected them, delivered them from their enemies. And you say, but he was killing an entire generation of Israelites. He was, in fact. And that was a blessing for the generation that remained. It doesn't really seem like a blessing for God to kill our parents and our grandparents, right? Well, when your parents and grandparents are unbelievers, it is, in fact, a blessing. God saves his people through judgment. He saves them by bringing them through the Red Sea and drowning the Egyptians. He saves them by destroying a generation of unbelievers and raising up a generation of faith that would ultimately conquer the promised land. Nobody wants to be in the wilderness, and yet the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. What sword is in view here? It's not the sword of Egypt. It's not the sword of the Amalekites. It's not the sword of the Canaanites. What's now in view is the sword of the Babylonians. That Those who survive the sword of the Babylonians are going to be sent into the wilderness. You're going to be in exile for 70 years. But what are you going to find there? You're going to find grace. You're going to find rest. You're going to find the Lord in this intimate and covenantal way. The Lord appeared and said, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness. I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt. You shall again be adorned with tambourines, go forth in dances. You'll plant vines and you'll eat them. There will be a day when the watchman will cry, Arise and let us go up to Zion to Yahweh our God. This is a great day of restoration and rejoicing. This is a great abundance that is set before us. But what stands between Jeremiah's time and those blessings? Exile, destruction, the burning of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, The, uh, you know, the moral, spiritual, religious uh, chaos of of the, the second temple period, which we see, you know, Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and just all of the division and the hypocrisy that was going on in the land at that time. All of that stands between Jeremiah and the fulfillment of these things. And yet the Lord describes this period as drawing his people with loving kindness, as loving them with an everlasting love. We need maybe a different way of thinking about the love of the Lord, because we, we maybe tend to define that or uh, recognize that in more experiential ways. Say, well, when everything's going well, I know that God loves me. And when everything in my life is falling apart, God must not love me, right? You hear that in the mouth of, you know, carnal people. They'll say, well, somebody up there must love me or, or not, Right? But The Lord describes his love and the drawing power of his love, drawing his people to blessing in the context of, of some very difficult history. And yet he's playing the long game. He's looking at the end of the story, not just at what is immediately before you, but what is ultimately for you. And remember that God in writing this story is not just writing your story. He's writing the story of his son. He's writing the story of the king. And you and I are very minor characters in that story. Like, we're one of the elves at, you know, Rivendell that you never, you never even learn their name, right? Like, we're holding a tray of grapes, probably. We're, we're clapping politely when, when Bilbo is singing his songs, right? We're just, we're just not really important in this story. And that's okay. That's okay. We tend to think that the, the, the history of the world has got to be about me. Like the most important thing that's always happening in the world is me and my story and my life. God says, no, 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 do you know what I'm doing with this kingdom? Do you know what I'm doing through my son? Do you know what I'm doing with my people? Now you you are a part of that. You get to enjoy and receive and be blessed in relation to all of that. But but you're not the main character in the story, right? You're not you're not even really an important character in the story, but but you are a character. And that's and, and that's probably true in multiple ways for some of us, right? But that's, that's really good news. That's really good news. You've got to think about the long game. Instead of thinking about just your trials in this moment, you've got to think about the big picture. God is calling us to joy. He's calling us to the day when we will rise up and go to Zion to be with Yahweh our God. And so verse 7, he says, sing with gladness. Shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people. And isn't that what the people are saying? As Jesus is coming triumphantly into Jerusalem, they're saying, Hosanna, Lord, save. Save your people. It is a prayer of blessing that becomes a word of praise because who, who would you say that to other than the Savior? The Lord says, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the ends of the earth. And who, who is this that he's bringing? The blind? The lame? The pregnant woman? The woman who is still having to work while she's ready to bear her children? They will come with weeping. This is a poor bedraggled bunch. These are not the beautiful people of the earth. They are not the mighty. They are not the noble. They are pathetic in many respects. And they come with tears. And yet God leads them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, one of the things you may have noticed thus far in the chapter is that the Lord is referring in language that has to refer to the northern kingdom. We've said several times in the book of Jeremiah already that oftentimes the Lord will use Israel as a as kind of a synonym for the southern kingdom of Judah, because at this point, there is no Israel, right? The northern kingdom of Israel is no longer a thing. The Judeans are Israelites. And so those, those terms are sometimes used interchangeably in por- portions of the book of Jeremiah to, when the Lord makes a prophecy against Israel, but he's actually talking about the southern kingdom that we think of as Judah. But that's not what's happening here. Did you notice that? Because if you go back up to verse 5, where are we planting vines? We're planting them on the mountains of Samaria, where are the watchmen crying from, in verse 6, on Mount Ephraim? And where, uh, who does the Lord refer to at the end of verse 9? I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is the most significant tribe in the northern kingdom. And so this is very clearly language that's talking about the north, right? Now, I don't think it's limited to the north. I think that the blessings that are described here are intended to be inclusive of all Israel. In fact, Paul is going to echo this kind of language in Romans 19 11 when he talks about all Israel, right? All Israel will be saved. It's not just one kingdom. It's not just one tribe. It's not just one group. But remember, the northern kingdom of Israel that's being referred to explicitly in these terms and in these promises, they never return to the land. They don't have Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah leading them back in order to rebuild the city of Samaria, right? To rebuild the golden calves at Dan and Bethel. That, That That nation never comes back. When you come to the New Testament, what what do you see about the political divisions of the Holy Land? You see Judea, you see Galilee, and you see Samaria. Judea are Jews. Galilee is a mixed Jew and Gentile province, and Samaria is its own thing. The Samaritans are their own thing, right? And the Jews and the Samaritans, they don't get along. They don't like each other. They don't interact with one another. The Samaritan woman is shocked that Jesus is even talking to her because she's a Samaritan woman and he's a Jewish man. The northern kingdom has not returned, and it never does. But it does in Christ. It does in this eschatological picture. And eschatological not in the sense of just at the end of all things, but in the sense of that new kingdom, that new uh, covenant, that messianic age that God will establish in his son. He says in verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, declare it in the isles afar off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Where do you see the northern kingdom return? It's where you see the ambassadors of the Lord Jesus going out to the uttermost parts of the earth and declaring that the Lord is God. Declaring that Jesus is Lord. Declaring that he is the good shepherd, he is the king of the world, he is the redeemer of his people. What you're seeing in verse 10 and The verses following is the book of Acts. That's where you see the northern kingdom returning because where do all of these Jews of the dispersion come from? Well, some of them, no doubt, were Judeans originally and they were carried away to Babylon and then they moved from there to various other places. But many of the Jews that are dispersed throughout the Greco-Roman world that then become the first converts as Christianity uh, spreads throughout that world, many of them were from the northern kingdom. And when do they return to the Lord? They return to the Lord when they confess that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and the son of David. Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, verse 11, ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord. And they shall no more sorrow uh, at all. They come to the goodness of the Lord. That's what you've come to. If you've come to faith in Christ, then you've come to know the goodness of the Lord. Of the Lord. Uh, Dane and I were talking about this I think last week maybe uh, with regard to our covenant children and uh, and even with regard to interacting with maybe new converts uh, or immature Christians. You know, a lot of people who get saved at a mature age, they come to faith because they're afraid of hell. And it's appropriate, right? It's appropriate. They should have the fear of God. They should have a sense of the conviction of their sins. They feel the weight of God's wrath and they run to Christ and they fall at the foot of the cross. But you know, how much is that going to be experienced in the same way by our covenant children? There is a stream of the Reformed tradition, and specifically the Presbyterian tradition, that wants to see that kind of terror of hell in our covenant children before we really consider them believers in the Lord. And I just want to say, just that's just bad. That's just wrong. I just think it's unbiblical, right? Now, if you've got some kind of a rowdy covenant kid, That really comes under conviction and the terrors of God's judgment. Okay, praise the Lord, right? Glad to have him too. But this idea that we are looking at our covenant children with suspicion and thinking that perhaps their faith is not genuine until we see them terrified of going to hell just doesn't seem consistent at all with anything that the Bible says. It seems instead to be a very revisionist sort of theology that arises out of a revivalistic, very late, modern, very American tradition. So we need to be careful of that. It's not just in America, by the way. It comes out of Scotland. But anyway, um, anyway n- enough of that. The people who come to the Lord, they come to his goodness. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't preach the law. That doesn't mean we shouldn't preach judgment. That doesn't mean that we should not expect adult converts, mature converts, to have a fear of condemnation. Absolutely they should. We should feel a little bit of that. Even when we when we persist in our sin, when we are impenitent before the Lord, we should feel that weight of God's displeasure that David describes in Psalm 32. That's not just for the unbeliever. That's for, that's for you and me as well. My covenant children, I want to treat them as members of the covenant. I want to call them to the goodness of the Lord. And I am not going to look at them with suspicion until I see some fear of hell being manifest in their hearts, all that tells me is I am not properly catechizing them with the promises of God. Verse 13, then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, the young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance, my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says Yahweh. That's what satisfies us. And again, this is not talking about when we get to heaven or when Jesus returns and raises the dead and brings us all into the new heavens and earth. Yes, that will be consummately experienced then and there. But as far as I can tell, Jeremiah is talking about the blessings that we live under right now. Right now. There are going to be periods where the church is persecuted. There are going to be periods where the church is called to fast and to mourn. But the general posture of the church in the Messianic age is to be one of dancing and rejoicing. Dancing and rejoicing. Celebration. We don't gather together on the Lord's Day and sing the hymns like we're all at a funeral. We're supposed to come together with joy into the house of the Lord. Why? Well, because our problems are all resolved. Because when I trusted Jesus, my bank account filled up with money, and you know, like, all of my kids got healthy, and my marriage, you know, all of those problems are over, and everything is just downhill from here. No. We come together with joy because we're satisfied with the goodness of the Lord that in spite of all of the frustrations and disappointments and miseries and struggles that we do experience in this world, as a child of God, as the people of God, we have joy in Christ. It's the goodness of God that is all that I need. I don't need Christ plus good health, Christ plus enough money in the bank, Christ plus the love and esteem of my peers. I just need Jesus. And if I have Christ, then I have everything that I need. Everything that I need and I am fully satisfied with him. We mentioned earlier uh, verse 15 and the way in which Matthew interprets this prophecy. And again, I would say there there are prophecies in in the Old Testament that are sometimes typological, and the fulfillment then in the New Testament may not not be the only historical way in which that prophecy is is envisioned, uh, and yet is is an example of a fulfillment. For example, uh, Hosea very classically, right? Uh, The Lord says through Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, when you're reading the prophet Hosea, you do not recognize that as a messianic prophecy. You think he's simply talking about bringing Israel out of Egypt in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. But Matthew takes that same prophecy and applies its fulfillment to Joseph and Mary and Jesus coming out of Egypt and returning to the land of Israel, to the city of Nazareth. Now, What are we supposed to make of that? Well, I I think it's reasonable to say Hosea is using this statement, this prophecy in in one respect of Israel historically as he's preaching, and yet that has a typological fulfillment that just as Israel in the Old Testament was brought out of Egypt, so Jesus, the new Israel of God, is brought out of Egypt, right? I think that's perfectly fair to say. You could say the same thing here. You could say that the the women of Israel are weeping for their children because they've been slaughtered by the Babylonians, and yet there will be a return from exile beyond on the other side of that judgment. That, that, That seems reasonable, and yet Matthew tells us the ultimate fulfillment of that and the really crucial fulfillment of it is when the infants are slaughtered at Bethlehem. Why is that so important? It's because now you know if that is being fulfilled, verse 17 is about to be fulfilled. That's that's what Matthew is signaling. If we know where we are now in Jeremiah chapter 31, oh wait, put, put a pin in it, because what comes right after that is the promise that the children are going to come back. And not just come back from the dead, but all of Israel is going to come back from the dead. God is going to bring resurrection to his people through the birth of the Christ child. Verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You've chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Now you'll notice what is said uh, right after the first line in verse 18 down through the end of verse 19 is Israel's response in their repentance. This is what repentance sounds like. Lord, you chastised me and I was chastised. I, I was like an untrained bull that needed to be chastised. Restore me and I will return for you are Yahweh my God. That's what the voice Of repentance, sounds like. Surely after my turning, I repented, and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is it appropriate to feel shame and humiliation and guilt? We don't want anybody to feel that way. Well, no, I mean, there's a healthy way to feel that. Now, you shouldn't wallow in that. You shouldn't always feel that, that you should experience The shame and and guilt and humiliation of your sin and then experience the joy and relief and comfort of God's love and forgiveness. But it's good to feel guilty if you're guilty. Like you shouldn't try and save your children from that. You shouldn't try and spare yourself from that in your sin. When When you screw up, you should feel bad about that. Like if we say, well, I have no regrets in life. There's a lot of things that Christians should regret. Chiefly our sin, right? Our foolishness. We don't wallow in that, but we recognize that's, that's part of the expression of a penitent heart. If you wouldn't do things differently, well, then, then there's, a, there's a real question about whether you've really come to terms with the guilt that you had before God that Jesus has delivered you from. This is the voice of repentance. I was ashamed. I was humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. But notice how God responds. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? Though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. God sent the Assyrians to cut down the forest of Israel. That's the image that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 10 and 11. The Assyrians come through and they just cut down the forest of Israel. He destroys the northern kingdom. He deports them. He scatters them. And he never regathers them. Never reinstitutes that political system. And so God must just hate Israel. He says, no. Israel's my son. I love Israel. I yearn for Israel. I will have mercy on Israel. You're thinking, are we talking about the same Israel here? There seems to be a little bit of equivocation here, Lord. Israel there was, they were really bad. They were really bad. God chastised them severely, but he did so in love. He did so in mercy. His salvation, yes, involves the destruction of the wicked, but it is so that he might show grace and mercy to the remnant who are repentant. Set up signposts, make landmarks, verse 21. Set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about, you backsliding daughter? For Yahweh has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. And that just kind of comes out of left field, and everybody goes, what in the world is he talking about there? I mean, this was encouraging. It was hopeful. and, And then he just says something that's really, really strange. Well, what is this prophecy in verse 22? all about. The Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Calvin gives basically three possibilities that I think kind of cover all of the bases that you need to know. He says, first of all, the historic small c Catholic view of this passage, the Christian view is the way that Calvin terms it, is that it's always referred to the Virgin Mary. That's the way that the early church, the ancient church, the medieval church always took it. A woman shall encompass a man because Christ, the God-man, is Uh, is uh, housed in the temple of Mary, right, who is the new ark. She's the new temple of the Lord. Her body encompasses the glory of God. That's just the way that the church has historically interpreted that promise. The Jewish rabbis interpreted it always in terms of the reconciliation of a divorced woman. And and so they would even translate, you can see this in Jewish translations of the the Hebrew Bible, they would translate this a little bit differently. Instead of like encompass, we we could think about it in terms of like, coming to hug, right? being reconciled, to embrace. A woman would embrace a man. And so the idea from from the rabbi's standpoint is that Israel has been divorced, uh, been put away, and now will return and will be once again embraced uh, with her husband and by her husband. Uh, Calvin takes a third view, and he says he thinks that this is referring to the fact that Israel, like a weak woman, would eventually besiege the strong man, who is Babylon, so, so, the woman would comparatively be weaker than the man, right? Uh, and, and Babylon is the strong man that God has raised up for judgment. And now, Israel, the weak woman, right? The, the bride of Yahweh, is now going to rise up and overwhelm or encompass the strong man. All, all of those, you know, you can make plausible arguments. I'm going to, I'm going to respectfully disagree with Calvin and just take the traditional Christian view on it. I think it's a reference to Mary. Um, but regardless of how you take it, those are those are kind of the major options there. Whatever interpretation you make of that passage, what I want you to notice is that the Lord doing this, this woman encompassing a man, is associated with the restoration of the backslider. All right. So, so what? Okay, you think that's. If you think that's Mary and the birth of the Christ child, what's Christ going to do? He's going to reconcile and redeem the backslider. Well, you think this is, this is uh, Israel's reconciliation with God? Yeah, a- absolutely, because Israel has backslidden and been divorced, and now God is going to bring them back. Or you take, you take Calvin's view, and the, and the weak is now going to become the strong and is going to overcome the persecutor. Right, yes, absolutely. All of those would be true. Verse 23, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use the speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. Yahweh bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, you see, uh, there's a whole theology of this that we need to, to trace out sometime and maybe in a Sunday school class or something like that, but where you have these greetings. How do God's people speak to one another? They always use the name of the Lord. And they're actually taught to in the book of Deuteronomy. You're to bless one another in the name of the Lord. And so Boaz goes out into his fields and he says, Yahweh bless you, or, Yahweh be with you, and his servants say, Yahweh bless you, right? And that's just that that's just the form of greeting. Well, here what they will say as they come is Yahweh bless you, a home of justice and mountain of holiness. And it's been a long time since Israel or Judah could be referred to in that way. There shall dwell in Judah itself and all its cities together farmers and those going out with flocks, for I have satiated the weary. Soul and replenished every sorrowful soul. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That God will satisfy the soul that is weary and he will comfort those who sorrow. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes as Revelation 21 anticipates. And yet that's already happening in one sense in the experience of the kingdom that we have today. Now, verse 26, the text says, After this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. There's some interesting ways that you could kind of interpret that in the connection of the prophecy, but virtually everyone interprets that as an editorial aside by Jeremiah, indicating that this prophecy is being received at night while he is asleep, and that he is waking up, and he is reflecting upon what the Lord has revealed, and it is sweet to his soul. It's a comfort and a blessing. Uh, You could see Bunyan using this idea in writing Pilgrim's Progress, right, where I dreamed a dream, And then he unfolds the the story of Christian and then Christiana uh, and their journey to the celestial city. And then the revelation continues, verse 27, behold, the days are coming that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. The idea is that God has raised the fields, right? Not raised up, but like torn down. He's just absolutely devastated the land. He's plucked up, he's burned, he's cast off, but now he's going to sow the fields once again. Life is going to return to the land. The land flowing with milk and honey is once again going to flow. It's once again going to be a place of blessing. And in order to do that, he is sowing that land with his people, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, with the seed of man and beast. And then the proverb that you see there in verses 29 and 30, if you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you're already familiar with this proverb. This is something that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel refer to that was common apparently among the captives in the Babylonian exile, they would say it's unfair what has happened. Our fathers ate sour grapes, and the children's teeth have been set on edge. What do they mean by that? Young people like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I'm not saying that they themselves said these things, but young people like them are being carried away into exile, not really so much for the things that they did, but for things that their parents did, and their grandparents did, and their great-grandparents did. And they're saying it doesn't seem fair that we are being punished by God in exile when we weren't the ones who actually broke the covenant with God. It doesn't seem just for God to do what he's done in this way. Now, what's the answer to that? Well, the answer is really back in chapter 24, and Ezekiel deals with it in his own way in a couple of places in his book. But, but in Jeremiah chapter 24, the parable of the figs really answers this because the Lord says, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. The ones in exile are the ones I'm saving. The ones that are remaining behind in the land are the ones I'm going to destroy. In other words, exile is, yes, a chastisement, but it's a means of salvation. I'm going to save you through judgment. But the Lord says that proverb is ultimately going to be abandoned in the blessings that are about to come. Now, I've left myself about 11 or 12 minutes to deal with the thorniest text uh, in the chapter. So that's great time management on my part. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says Yahweh. But This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Two important issues we need to deal with here. One is a theological one. One is a textual one. I'm going to deal with a theological one first. How is the new covenant new? This passage really is the difference between Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians, right? I mean, it it really comes down. You could say, well, there's this passage over here and this passage. I mean, really it comes down to, how do we understand this prophecy? There is an idea that would say, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. That would interpret that to mean they all know me because they are all regenerate. They all know me because they have all individually, personally, every member of that kingdom, every member of that covenant has been born from above, which means that they're elect, which means that they're converted, which means that they're not in a baby carrier. Right? Or at least if the baby and the baby carrier has been elect and regenerated by God, we don't know it yet. Right? We don't know it until they can profess faith. I would say that is an overrealized eschatology. And I would say that internally, the prophecy itself does not lend itself to that interpretation. Let's deal, first of all, with in what way the new covenant is new. And there's a lot that we could say about this, and there's a sermon that we preached on this a few years ago that you could look up on YouTube or Sermon Audio and deal deal with it in a lot more detail. But it's new basically in three important senses. It's new in terms of the fullness of its promises. What you see are promises that God is making to his people all through the Old Testament history that are having maybe partial fulfillments, maybe typological fulfillments, but are now reaching a level of fullness in the new covenant that you've never seen before. Think about the Holy Spirit, for example. Do the people of God have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Yeah, otherwise they can't be the people of God. how How do you come to faith without the Holy Spirit? And yet, in John chapter 7, John tells us, Jesus said these things about the Holy Spirit who would be given to those who believed in him, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now you could read that and say, well, then the Holy Spirit had never been given to anyone before Jesus' glorification. Now that's not his point. But his point is the fullness of that promise, the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh, every member of the church receiving the Spirit of God, reaching a fullness that it's never reached before. And there are numerous examples of that greater fullness of the new covenant, both in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere. Secondly, the new covenant is new in terms of the extent of its application. In the Old Testament, the covenant of grace was administered primarily to the people of Israel, to the biological descendants of Abraham. Now, that doesn't mean that no Gentiles were saved. It doesn't even mean that Gentiles were not brought into the nation of Israel. We see that happening a number of times in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we see something very, very different, don't we? We see global evangelization. We see to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We see not only the men receiving the covenant sign, but the women also receiving the covenant sign. We see and don't misunderstand this word, a more egalitarian administration of this covenant. I don't mean that in the sense of the like, social progressives, right? But, but a more egalitarian in the sense of a more equal distribution, less hierarchy, less exclusivity, and more global encompassing of people from among all nations, regardless of their status, regardless of their sex, regardless of their class. And it's new in terms of its consummation of the former types. What you have in the New Testament is the reality that was only signified before. This is a major part of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is saying everything in the Mosaic system, everything in the Mosaic economy, from the very construction of the tabernacle and the furniture that was put in it, was all a type and shadow pointing ahead to the reality that we have in Christ. So there, you would go through the holy place and enter through a veil into the most holy place and never without blood and only just the high priest on behalf of all the people. But now, Jesus has torn open the veil, which is his flesh. And he's taken his own blood inside and he has brought us with him in his train. He's brought us into the most holy place behind him. So everything that the Old Testament is foreshadowing is ultimately being consummated and fulfilled in this new covenant. How is it not new? It's not new in applying real salvation to the people of God. This is a mistake that gets made frequently. It was made a lot in the churches I grew up in. They would say people in the Old Testament weren't, weren't technically forgiven of their sins until Jesus died. Right? That their sins would be rolled forward every year at the Day of Atonement. There would be a reminder of those sins, and they would just kind of roll it forward, roll it forward, roll it forward until Jesus finally pays for it all. But that's that's to misunderstand some really important things in Leviticus chapter 16 and in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. No. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says that Jesus' work flows forward and backward in time. That he is the he provides redemption for the transgressions under the first covenant, yes, but he actually applies that prior to his being offered as the Lamb of God. Because what does Leviticus chapter 4 say? It says, when you offer the sin offering, the priest will make atonement for your soul, and you will be forgiven. Then, there, not 2,000 years later. Right then, right there. So the new covenant is not new in terms of applying actual salvation. It's not new in terms of having Christ be the effectual Savior and mediator. Nobody's saved by law in the Old Testament. Nobody's saved by Moses. Nobody's saved by the blood of bulls and goats. They're saved by Christ. But there's two other things that are not new, and this is important. The new covenant is not new in terms of having an external and internal administration. And we've said this is really the key to wrestling with this point. It's not new in terms of the external-internal administration, because what do you see? You see in the Old Testament, you say, well, the the people of God are defined biologically, they're defined nationally, they're defined politically, so there are a lot of hypocrites in the camp. Well, I would argue, yeah, there are a lot more hypocrites in the camp because what do you see in the New Testament? Nobody gets baptized because of biology. Have you noticed that? Nobody in the church gets baptized because of biology. You might have thought differently, but nobody in, the, in this church gets baptized because of biology. Because here is a, here's a family that has a child that they've adopted, and what do we do? The parents come forward and say, we believe in Jesus, and we baptize the child. And we don't baptize the children, of a person who doesn't believe, even though their great-great-grandfather was a Christian. Nobody gets baptized because of biology. The people who are the people of God, who belong to the kingdom of God, belong because they believe. They belong through faith. And so, yeah, in the Old Testament, where it's just simply a matter of biology and national identity, there are a lot of hypocrites in the camp. But what do you see in the New Testament? You see Jesus saying, I am the vine and you are the branches, and the van- branches that don't bear fruit will be cut off and burned. a wait, oh, wait a second. The, Jeremiah said everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. Well, they do. They do. And they don't. They do and they don't. Romans chapter 1 says everyone knows the Lord by the works of creation and providence and that some people suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So, yeah, d- does, does this promise mean what it means? Absolutely, 100%. Yes, You are not a Christian simply by virtue of your biology, but through faith. And yet Jesus says there are going to be branches that don't bear fruit and are cut off and burned. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 11, branches cut off for unbelief and grafted on through faith. He warns the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5 that you can fall from Christ. You can fall from grace. You can be severed from Christ by turning back to the law. The Hebrews writer, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, you know these passages very well. We talk enough about them, right? People once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, partaken of the Holy Spirit. Wait a second. Do apostates and hypocrites partake of the Holy Spirit? Well, according to the Bible, they do. Are they sanctified by the blood of the covenant? According to Hebrews 10, they are. Are false teachers who are reprobates consecrated so that Christ is their master? According to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, they are. Yeah, there's an external administration. Do they, do they know the Lord? Yeah, they do. Do they know him savingly? No, they don't. Do you see that? What I, I don't want you to walk away and say, well, what Pastor Joel basically said is that the promise that Jeremiah makes or that the Lord makes through Jeremiah here doesn't really mean what it means. It means exactly what it means. But this is the point that the New Testament makes is that the unbeliever who was once a member of the church, knows the Lord, and he's leaving what he knew. He was never elected unto salvation. He was never truly justified. He never had saving communion with Christ. But he was sanctified by the Spirit, sanctified by the blood of Jesus, served Christ as Lord, knew the Lord. And Peter says it would be better if he had never known the truth than having known to turn away. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Ultimately, John tells us, they were not of us because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 1 John two nineteen, And that brings us to the last thing. How is it not new? The new covenant's not new in its inclusion of covenant children. And this I want to just prove to you by three Old Testament proof texts, and then I'll, I'll reference some New Testament stuff. But if you're here in Jeremiah, just look a page or two over at Jeremiah 32, verse 38. You're still in the book of Consolation. You're still in the same context, the same promises. In fact, you'll see the same language that we've been reading in chapter 31 all night. Verse 38 of Jeremiah 32 says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. And who is the promise to? Well, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, it's to you and to your children. And he's simply echoing the Old Testament language. He's using the same language that the Lord used with Abraham, that's used in the Psalms, that's used here in Jeremiah, and in many other places. You could turn back to Isaiah chapter 59 for just a minute, or you could just jot these down and look at them later. But Isaiah chapter 59, verse 21 Again, without going through all of the context, I think if you'll study the context, you'll see you're in the exact same place. You're talking about the Messianic age, the Messianic kingdom, the new covenant. For example, verse 20 says, The Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says Yahweh, as for me, says Yahweh, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants. Nor from the mouth of your descendants, descendants, says Yahweh, from this time and forevermore. New covenant, what's the promise? The spirit will be with you and God's law will be in your mouth and in your children and in your grandchildren. And you need to believe those promises, by the way. Instead of saying, well, you know, may, maybe my kids are going to be the kids that aren't, aren't believers because we all know that that sometimes happens. Well, yeah, it does happen and, and you need to act like a believer. And believe that your children belong to God because he says they belong to him and that his spirit is in them because he says he's in them and that his law will be in their mouth and then raise them accordingly. You need a parent like these promises are true. And then Ezekiel 37, just to give you one more of many. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. Again, same context, new covenant, messianic age. We see verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them. Who is that? It's not David of old. It's the new David, the son of David, Jesus. David, my servant, shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where their fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will will establish them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. He goes on to describe, I will be their God and all the nations are going to know it. But but do you see that these three passages are talking about the new covenant under Christ and who's the covenant with? My people and their children. Believers and their children. And not just their children, but their children's children. This is a multi-generational promise. And this is why in the New Testament we find Jesus welcoming the, the children of believers, Luke 18, and saying, do not forbid them for to such as these, to ones like these belongs the kingdom of God. He doesn't say to ones who are like these but not these, right? Hopefully one day it will be these, you know. No, like they're included. They're included. Acts 2, 39, we mentioned. The promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. The promises to you and to your children, to many who are afar off as well. We will see who that is. That's why we're carrying the gospel to them. But we already know the promises for you and your children. Why? Because the Lord said so through Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Or in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, where Paul says, The children of even one believer are holy. The word there is the word that is translated saint in your New Testament over and over and over. It's used some 60 plus times in the New Testament. Your children are saints. They don't become saints by baptism. We baptize them because they are saints. Baptism is the visible entrance into the kingdom of God. The children of believers are members of the kingdom of God, period, full stop, because they're the children of believers. Now, they should be baptized. We want to baptize them. But, but baptism is not some kind of magic ritual making something true about them that wasn't true before. They are holy. They are holy ones. They belong to God. All right. Um, we're five minutes over time. I need to deal real quickly with this textual question. Just bear with me for a moment. I didn't get to preach it all on Sunday. And so I was supposed to preach morning and evening too. Real quickly, and and we can circle back to this next week because we're going to have to finish the chapter next week. But back in Jeremiah 31, verse 32, the latter part of the verse, the Lord says, I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. And if you read the quotation of this passage in Hebrews chapter 8, it will say something to the effect of, um, uh, and I turned away from them or I disregarded them, okay? And and you say, well, what's what's the difference? The difference is that the Hebrew manuscripts that we have of the book of Jeremiah all basically say, though I was a husband to them. That's That's the majority reading, that's the stable text, that's the traditional text, that's what the Hebrew Bible says, right? The New Testament is quoting a different text. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, it reads my covenant which they broke and I turned away from them or I disregarded them. So many people will say, well, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who he is, so we'll just call him Paul, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Septuagint, which must mean that the Septuagint is an older text than the Hebrew, which can correct the Hebrew text. But that's not the way I resolve this. Which reading should we accept? Should we accept the reading in Jeremiah that says, they broke the covenant though I was a husband to them? Or should we accept the text in Hebrews 8 that says, they broke the covenant and I turned away from them? I, I think we should accept both readings. Why? Because they're both in the word of God. One of them is attested in Hebrew. One of them is attested in Greek. And what does our confession say, by the way? it says that the word of God is originally found in the Hebrew and Greek text. Now you say, but how in the world could that be if this is the same passage, pastor, but it's reading two different ways. Now I would, I would point out the difference is not that great. Like it's not as if the doctrine of the Trinity is hanging on this, right? It's a fairly minor difference we grant, but nonetheless, I don't think either of them needs to be corrected because both have been providentially preserved. And how could that be? Let me point out two ways and, just, and then we'll be done. I don't think it's true here, but it is entirely plausible that as certain books of the Bible were being originally dictated and copied by multiple scribes in the same room, that some of the variants that we find in our manuscripts of the Bible are actually originally different. In other words, Paul is writing letters to the churches and he is writing, he's dictating in a room where two or three or four scribes are taking it down and one of them drops the article and another one misspells the word and another one puts a, syn- a synonym instead of the word that he actually spoke because he kind of lost his place for a moment. And that, that, which, which one is the original? Well, as it turns out, they're all original. Do they affect the original meaning of the passage? No. No, they're just largely insignificant, we would say, scribal errors. In a passage like this, I think what's more likely is that one of these two readings was the original one that Jeremiah wrote down. Probably the Hebrew, but maybe maybe the Greek translation was made from an earlier Hebrew text. One of them was the original version that the Lord gave to Jeremiah, and the other one was, we might say, an interpretive rendition of it. Maybe as the rabbis are translating the book of Jeremiah, they interpret that passage a little bit. And instead of saying, though I was a husband to them, they say, though I tur- or, and I turned away from them. But which of these has the authority of God standing behind it? I think the answer is both, because they're both in your Bible. They're both attested in Hebrew and Greek. And here's what I don't think we can do. I, don't, I realize not everybody's going to agree on issues of textual criticism, and that's okay. But I don't think we can say this. I don't think we can say, well, the, the quotation in the New Testament has to be used to correct the quotation in the Old Testament. So here, you, you, you see what it's supposed to be in Hebrews 8. So get your pen out and cross out the words, though I was a husband to them, in Jeremiah 31, and pencil in the words, from Hebrews chapter 8, or vice versa. Well, we know what it was originally in the Hebrew. Paul obviously got it wrong, so get your pen out and cross out the words in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, you have the text, and yes, it's got variants in it, but you have the text. In these two places, the traditional received text that the church has always recognized as the word of God. In Jeremiah 31 says one thing, and in Hebrews 8 says another thing. And I think you need to accept that that is providentially what God wants you to know from that passage. They're stable. They're traditional. They've been received by the believing community. I don't think we need to correct anything. I think we need to simply accept them and acknowledge them for what they are.